0: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. They're running a strange
1: program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Marano. There is a story out of the New York area which has now, Begun to be followed by the whole country. I say begun. Really, since it happened, it has captured the attention, the imagination, and the highly charged opinions, not just of the whole country, but of the whole world. Look, if you live in a city, And you take the train regularly. I'm sure you know what it's like. I was on the subway yesterday. There's every variety of character that walks onto the subway. I'm sure you know what it's like to have someone on that train that's a little out there, maybe even a little deranged, someone that you're afraid of and you keep your distance from. What do you do, though, if this person goes nuts right there on the train and openly says... He's going to kill you and he's going to kill everybody and he doesn't care what happens to him as long as he kills folks. That's not a direct quote, but that is almost what occurred in the case of Jordan Neely and the person that jumped to aid his fellow strap hangers was a Marine veteran by the name of Daniel Penny, a young man who held him. And unfortunately, because uh, Jordan Neely was resisting and kept trying to get up and Daniel Penny kept trying to hold him, he ended up dying. And Jordan Neely ended up dying. And I said, any New Yorker, even a Manhattan grand jury that has ever taken the subway, there is no way they're ever going to indict Daniel Penny. Well, it shows you how little I know about the criminal justice system and the types of people that get called for criminal cases in uh, Manhattan. Yesterday, there was a major development on this case, and I've been monitoring the coverage and the commentary on this case, uh, not only in New York, but around the country, written commentary, spoken word commentary, and I have to tell you, over the course of the last year, there is nobody who has been more on the money with his predictions and more insightful with his analysis than Dominic Carter. Dominic Carter is not only a veteran broadcast journalist who's been a friend of mine for almost 25 years, but he's been informing New Yorkers and a national audience on radio and TV for much longer than that. I mean, he was informing people on radio even when he still had hair. He is uh, m- <laughs> my highly rated lead-in on WABC in New York. And whenever I'm uh, seeking feedback from management, they always say, why can't you be more like Dominic Carter? So I have been able to coax him to stick around uh, a little bit today to chat about this case. It, it's
2: great to be here with you, Frank. You you have a wonderful national show uh, informing Americans around the country and major cities around the country And it's just great to be here with you, though this is a bit odd. Mm -hmm. Because normally,
1: if I'm here this time of morning, (laughs) that means you have the day off. That's right. I'm usually uh, asleep somewhere, getting drunk somewhere, one of the two. (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm glad we were able to get you to stick around. Uh, All right. So yesterday, Daniel Penny and his attorney, uh, Thomas Kniff, they filed this motion to dismiss the motion to dismiss is a pretty high bar. I mean, there's got to yes. be almost no chance that this case could reasonably come to trial. Give us the breakdown of what happened in court yesterday and, and, and give folks an idea of uh, where you see this case going from here. Well, the judge, Judge uh, Maxwell Willey, uh batted down
2: Mr. Penny's uh, attorney's motion uh, on the manslaughter case because uh, alleged issues with the prosecutor's instructions to the grand jury, and also uh, Mr. Mr. Uh, Penny's attorneys argued the Marine that is the hero Marine because let's not let's be very clear this guy was a hero trying to help other people. That's how he got involved mm-hmm. in this mess, and uh, also that the medical examiner didn't establish that Penny's actions killed uh, Neely. Now, the, the judge ruled that the medical examiner's testimony and Neely's death certificate, which said that the former Michael Jackson impersonator, the homeless man, died from compression of the neck. In other words, a chokehold was more than enough to establish that the defendant's actions caused the death of Neely. So you're right, Frank. It's a very high bar mm-hmm. to get a case like this dismissed. But the fact of the matter is, so you're in, you're on in major cities like uh, Detroit. What, what are some of the yeah, other locations? Yeah, WCBM
1: in Baltimore, KMS in St. Louis, St. Louis. Uh, KWM in uh, in uh, Tennessee. We're on a lot. WCT in Nashville, and,
2: and you're on, that's right on any of those locations. This could happen. Any of these locations, we've let's face it, every American has been on a train, a bus with someone uh, that's mentally ill that should be institutionalized Mm -hmm. somewhere, but they're not. And so, as you said at the top of your show, Frank, what do you do at that point? Right. And so, this this homeless man, uh, Mister Jordan Neely, again, who was a Michael Jackson Jackson impersonator, right? And it's kind of it's unfair when the media shows him as the Michael Jackson impersonator, right? That it, wasn't the fella that right, uh, Daniel
1: Penny encountered on the right.
2: train. Right. The person that the hero marine encountered on the train, and the media has made this about race because you have a a a, a white hero Ma- Marine and a black homeless man. But it wasn't about race, and here's why. Because the hero Marine was protecting African-American
1: women right. uh, that, and, that were on the train. And uh, if people want to comment, we'll try and take a few of your calls at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. So, Dominic, you've covered a lot of trials over the years, uh, and uh, we, we've been covered some of the same trials. Where do you see this case going from here? I mean, do you see a, a scenario in which this ends with a conviction? No,
2: I don't. You know, it's going to be very, very uh, high profile. It's going to be uh, racially inflammatory. In every city, every state that you air in right now, you're going to hear about this case. You're going to see the videos on television of the Michael Jackson impersonator. But I say, keep this in mind. To your point, that was not the individual that this hero marine, this guy, was minding his business. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And and the homeless man comes on, mentally ill homeless man, comes on the train. As you said, Frank, he's threatening to kill people. He said he was prepared to die today. And so the Marine grabbed him, and he just tried to hold him. But it so happens that the medical examiner claims that it was a chokehold, and so the defense, the prosecution, they will go, go through that. But I want you to listen to this, Frank, because here's the thing that greatly 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 insulted Mm -hmm. me right so racial divisions in our country we already have a major problem in terms of um, racial opportunists uh, in terms of black lives matter that just make the problem a million times worse they're not helping anybody they're inflaming the situation so this hero marine he's in the battle of his life right now he's looking at up to 19 years in jail for this, for just stepping up, Mom. trying to help other people. And he's going to come in to, from the courthouse and go back to his car. And you had a couple of nut jobs out there. I want you to listen to what they were saying as it relates to this Marine.
1: We're going to get you, cracker. We're going to get you, cracker. We're going to get you, cracker. We're going to get you. We're going to get
2: you. Cracker. you're going to use a murderer. You're a murderer. You're a murderer. Now, can you imagine, Frank, reverse the roles, oh, right? You. Reverse for the you. roles. Let's say a, a African-American defendant that's, uh, that's charged with killing uh, a white person. Same scenario. And that African-American defendant is walking into the courthouse with, with, with counsel. And a bunch of people are standing around using the N-word. Can you imagine that
1: scenario? Well, I'll be honest with you. It's difficult for me to imagine a black man being even at this point. I don't think they would have been criminally indicted. I don't think the case would be going to trial at that point. I agree with you. You know, it's interesting. uh, Obviously, you're black, but you've also covered a lot of trials that have been uh, racially inflammatory over the years. A lot. A guy that's probably listening to us right now is Bernard Getz. We remember that case back in 1980. 84. When it comes to the similarities and the differences as it relates to race being a factor in this situation, how similar do you think it is to something like the Getz case? It, it's been compared to that a
2: lot, a lot. And and it's unfair. It's unfair to this Marine. And, and you are correct. Bernie Getz listens to your program just about every night. Uh, And he was, he, he could tell you what it's like to be cast into this position where you're a regular person. Again, anyone listening to your show right now, whichever city or state you're in, just imagine this. You're a regular person. You try to interfere and stop someone that's mentally unstable and, and unstable. And you're trying to, to help others. And next thing you know, you know, somehow you, you grab them and, and, and it's a hold and, and and the medical examiner rules that, that it was a chokehold that killed. And now you're a United States Marine. You, you, you committed the crime, if I can be honest with you, of being white, right? And uh, now imagine that scenario. And then you're looking at manslaughter charges.
1: Well, you know, one of the things that I'm sure you remember from the OJ case is the racial divisions in the whole country surrounding that case polling suggested that almost everybody who was white thought that o j was guilty, right. And uh, almost everybody that was black felt that he was either not guilty and they were rooting for him to be acquitted and the the vibe that I get in that o j case is that they a lot of the black community saw o j as an opportunity to get back at the system. Here was a white racist cop that they perceived to be lying in Mark Furman. And in voting to acquit, a lot of black folks viewed this as a way to kind of give the establishment that has screwed the black community time and time again a little bit of their comeuppance. Al Sharpton, when he spoke at uh, Jordan Neely's memorial he said, because when they choked Jordan, they put their arms around all of us. All of us have the right to live. seems like Sharpton's kind of trying to do that same thing, engender that same level of uh, sympathy, with the black community and the victim in this case, Jordan Neely. Is that going to be successful? Do you see this case breaking down along racial lines like an OJ case did?
2: It it already has been broken down uh, 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 along racial lines. And you mentioned uh, Reverend Trompton talking about the whole community. Mm -hmm. Well, where was the whole community when uh, Mr. Neely needed help for his mental services? Yeah. Where was the whole community when he was running around on the train doing things that are horrible to people, where was the whole community? I'll be more direct. Where was his family when he was hungry? Where was his family? Uh, There are reports that, that he came close to pushing people on on the subway tracks. And again, in any city in America, any location in America, these are real issues that could happen to anybody. And now you have a former decorated United States Marine that's being called essentially a racist when he was standing up to help others. And there were two other individuals that that also uh, tried to help him restrain uh, the, the man. And yet the Marine, who happens to be white, is the only one that's charged.
1: Dominic Carter, uh, you have done a a yeoman's job today. Uh, Hopefully we can call upon you as this case continues to be in the news. Yes, sir. uh, I'll see you tomorrow. Fantastic. All right. Uh, We're going to check in with Michael Tracy, who uh, he gave us the snow job from Iowa the other day. He was nowhere to be found. We'll see if we can uh, get a hold of him now, uh, because there are some fascinating things happening as a result of this Iowa caucus that nobody is talking about it. You're going to learn about it here on this program exclusively, but you've got to stay tuned straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano.
0: Other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Wake up, little Susie. Wake
2: up. Wake up, little Susie. Wake up. We've both been sound asleep. Wake up,
1: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. On the occasional and rare moment that I sound semi-coherent or semi-intelligent, it is usually because I have committed Twitter plagiarism by uh, just reading from Michael Tracy's Twitter feed. I know it's now called X, but I'm a dinosaur. I still call it Twitter. He is probably the main reason that I still have Twitter because I get such a kick out of his tweets, and even though There's uh, whatever many characters they allow you now. They're, They're packed with information, an occasional dose of sarcasm, and a great deal of intelligence. And he is just off the campaign trail where he was covering the Iowa caucuses, and we have given him a couple of days to defrost. But he is joining us once again. Very pleased to be joined by independent journalist Michael Tracy. Michael, do you still call it Twitter, or do you call it
0: X? You know, say, enunciating X is just so awkward that right. I think everybody's just going to habitually stick to Twitter just in, just for the same clarity. Whenever you see Twitter or X reference in print media, they still almost uniformly say the platform formerly known as Twitter. Right. And it's been like six months since the name was officially changed. So who knows?
1: All right. So it seems like you're with me and still calling it Twitter for the most part.
0: Yeah, I mean, I still don't really understand the logic behind changing the name because Twitter was so universally known as just one of the chief social media platforms that had entered into the cultural you know, nomenclature. Whereas X is just clunky and even still difficult to kind of uh, naturally integrate into one's frame of reference indeed indeed who cares
1: uh, indeed all right so you were in Iowa uh you're back from Iowa I take it now right yeah
0: I just got back today
1: actually okay yeah. so you were in Iowa for the uh the Hawkeye Hawkeye uh, how did the weather affect you and maybe more important how do you think the weather affected turnout
0: okay so here's the best way to illustrate how cold it was it was so cold that even when I was driving around in my rental car I had the heat on full blast my that my feet would inevitably get cold just because when set on the floor of the car, they were close enough to the exterior, or close enough to the outside temperature that my feet would get cold. I had never experienced that before. It was, it's so cold that it actually is like it's like it was sharply painful. Now, I generally am more able to withstand cold weather. Than a lot of people who I often feel like get hysterical about it, but this was an exception. I mean, this was rough. This was uh, it was so cold that one night I was in my hotel and throughout the night alarms kept going off. So I was like wondering, is there a fire? Is there something going on? And it turned out that it was so cold that the entire building's pipe system froze, and it was causing like flooding and everything. It was just it was wild. And yes, it did. Ha- it happened to just coincide with the Iowa caucus. Oh my um, goodness! No, so, I, I mean, so the how did it affect the caucus? Well, just anecdotally, I, I personally spoke to people who were inhibited from attending for weather-related reasons. Like actually, just before I left um, this afternoon, I stopped by the only uh, kosher deli in <laughs> Des Moines, <laughs> and I, I think I, I learned that this place existed because the, uh, Ron DeSantis had actually gone there. The campaign uh, a few weeks ago, and I went in and got a sandwich. It was very good. But uh, one of the guys working there, like an Orthodox Jew, who was otherwise inclined to support DeSantis, said that his road, st- like the road that his house is on, was still perilously covered with frozen snow. So remember, there was a blizzard a couple days before the caucus, and then it was such frigid temperatures that the snow hadn't gone anywhere, so he wasn't able to safely get out of his house, wow. more or less. And you know, the nature of a caucus is that if you can't physically get there on, at 7 p.m. on a Monday night, then you're screwed. Um, so I, I also just encountered lots of people who had to work or had other obligations that prevented them from attending. So it really is an extremely narrow sliver of the electorate, I think the final number was that it was only about 15% of registered Republicans in the entire state of Iowa who attended, which was down pretty substantially from 2016. Sure, sure. Um, so it's hard to say who it, it exactly disadvantaged. My theory is that Trump probably would have won by a larger margin if turnout had been increased or if there hadn't been the complications posed by the weather, because Trump's, Democratic within the Republican Party tends to skew more downscale, meaning socioeconomically, right? So, Right, the the more, more had, working class folks. Right. So the people who are yeah, working class who would maybe not be able to attend because of their um, obligation to work or what have you, or maybe because of they had to take care of a family member or for some other reason, probably would tend to be less affluent and therefore... Uh, disproportionately trump supportive, whereas uh, Haley and DeSantis, if you look at the some of the data, um, they tended to be more concentrated among the affluent uh, mm-hmm. cohort of mm-hmm. of the party. so my my premonition is that Trump would have won by a larger margin if there had been a system in place in Iowa that is a bit more conducive to widespread mass participation. Which the caucus is kind of an antithesis of. I mean, it was interesting to observe. I had actually never been to an Iowa caucus in person before. I usually had been to, I would concentrate on the New Hampshire primary in past cycles, and I'm going to go there over the weekend as well. Um, but the caucus, I mean, it is an interesting process. I mean, you have to, I went to a play, uh, high school auditorium, where People actually have to debate amongst themselves to some extent, and Mm -hmm. there are uh, delegates selected by each individual precinct. and I saw a DeSantis supporter trying to convince Trump supporters that Trump actually sold out the country to Doctor Fauci and uh, ushered in this era of you know big government authoritarianism. It didn't seem to work because Trump still won pretty uh, clearly in my uh, at my caucus site. But it is sort of, you know, it is democracy in action in a way, but there's also some downsides in that it's a private party-administered event rather than a state-administered election. The party can do whatever it wants, even if it um, hinders a huge segment of the population from being able to attend, they can proceed with it. But it is sort of novel that uh, such an unrepresentative portion of the population has such an outsized role, in determining who the next, you know, quote unquote leader of the free world is. Right.
1: right.
0: Um, remember, you know, only 15% even of registered Republicans in Iowa. And these are some of the most plugged in, motivated voters in the entire country because they're so accustomed to Iowa being at the center of political attention in the country. I mean, There's a whole industry in Iowa around, you know, kind of a specialization in caucus process. Um So, anyway, I'm ramping.
1: No, um, one of the things, and people are just tuning in, we're uh, talking with Michael Tracy. He does a lot of work everywhere. Great freelance journalist, wonderful independent journalist, uh, very, very experienced. Uh, but I think he does some of his best work on Twitter. You can follow him on Twitter at M Tracy, M T R A C E Y. Um, One of the things that people have attributed to potentially uh, reducing turnout was not just the weather, but the fact that all of the big media organizations called the outcome of the race not only before the people were done caucusing, but in some instances before people had even begun caucusing. Speak to that for a second. What was your experience like being at a caucus site while the election results or the caucus results were already called?
0: Yeah, so I can personally attest to that being the case, because I was at a caucus site, again, at a high school auditorium in a place called Grimes, Iowa, which is in Dallas County, sort of a suburb of Des Moines. And I was watching the campaign surrogates give their final addresses to the crowd that had assembled, because in in a caucus, each campaign delegates, uh, certain representatives to go and appear before the people who were there and make a case for them to support their candidate. And uh, that process was still going on when I got the first, you know, push notification on my phone saying that Donald Trump had been declared the winner of the mm. Iowa caucus. So literally no one had voted in my entire, at the entire caucus site that I was at when that notification came through. And, You know, I guess, you know, technically there was probably some statistical validity to the determination to make that declaration when it was made. But if you're going to get all high and mighty and pious about so-called election interference or, um, you know, the sanctity of the democratic process, which the media tends to do day in, day out to the point of utter tedium, and then they have no qualm about... Uh, forcibly interceding in the middle of a very consequential democratic exercise to the point that you're almost telling people in a way that their vote doesn't count or like I mean most people aren't in, intimately familiar with the apportionment of delegates and that even if Trump is the you know declared the winner overall, maybe their vote still counts because if you're supporting another candidate, then they could still get a certain number of delegates if you continue if, – if you, you know, continue, uh, carry on and cast your vote for them. And most people don't really get the in, the, the intricacies of that. Um, so it could have had an impact because, you know, as I'm sure people are aware, lots of people get push notifications on their phone nowadays. Um, and... Everybody in there has a smartphone, even the even the retirement age folks who tended to be who uh, populate uh, an Iowa caucus. Um, so, yeah, so as I was sitting there and before a single person had been in, able to vote yet, there was definitely the call that was made for uh, Trump winning the caucus. I mean, I don't, who would have heard it if for the networks or the media organizations to simply wait a half hour or an hour
1: Right, I mean that—that's what I don't understand. I mean, to open themselves up to all this criticism, not only from other candidates but from voters and party leaders, uh, to me is such a, an unforced error for very little value. I don't—I don't get it at all. Uh, but you think because of the narrowness of who ends up voting in a caucus and the relatively paltry turnout, at least compared to a primary, that a caucus generates, that if there had been a primary that Trump would have won by a wider margin. Well, yeah, I, th- I think that
0: probably stands to reason because even going back to the 2016 Republican primaries, Ted Cruz overperformed in caucuses, and relatively speaking, and Trump underperformed in caucuses, relatively speaking. Remember, Ted Cruz actually won the Iowa caucus against Trump in 2016 because he was able to organize, uh, especially the Christian conservative vote in Iowa, which w- which is influential. And uh, Trump had more of a ramshackle operation at that point. And uh, there were other caucuses that were held in 2016, and Cruz tended to overperform in them. Cruz actually won Maine, uh, which was one of the oddest results of the 2016 cycle, because Maine actually tended to, uh, to be one of the more natural constituencies for Trump. And he ended up winning in the general election one of the congressional districts in Maine, which netted him an additional electoral vote because Maine is one of two states that allocates its uh, electoral votes by congressional district. Sure, sure. So, yeah, Trump probably would have performed even better if there had been more mass participation because, again, it comes to the demographic breakdown economically within the Republican Party. Where you have, um, you know, DeSantis was probably the best analog to Cruz this time around in terms of who he was appealing to, although it doesn't quite map on uh, perfectly. But you know, roughly speaking, and these are the the DeSantis people are going to be the more uh, politically attuned. They're going to they're, they're they're tend to be more affluent. They tend to be more uh, politically engaged, just in terms of their ideological convictions. So. Uh, The caucus tends to overrepresent those types of people, whereas the more casual uh, news consumer, the more casual follower of politics, who maybe feels positively toward Trump but is not, again, hyper engaged in the process, um, going to be lesser represented. So I I would expect that to probably be borne out to some extent in, um, in New Hampshire next week and then through other uh, caucus, other primaries. A lot was the, made. The, the caucus really is a relic of the past sure. in, a, in a lot of ways. Now, I don't think Iowa is ever going to get it. Get get, Iowa is going to get rid of it anytime soon because for them it comes with a lot of prestige, first sure. in the nation, et cetera, and there's also this cottage industry of operatives who specialize in caucus procedure. Um, but uh, for the, for much of the country, it really does not make the sense on a logistical level, or even just in terms of basic fairness for who's able to participate.
1: Yeah, talking with Michael Tracy. Hey, uh, we, a lot was made of the fact that Ron DeSantis had uh, visited all 99 counties. He clearly invested a, a lot of his time there and a lot of his money, uh, to the extent that he had uh, resources. Why do you think he did finish second, but why do you think he fell so short of Trump? Uh, a year ago, people were predicting that he was going to win. Not, not even that long Ago, six months ago, people were predicting that he might have a chance of winning in Iowa. Why did he fall so far fall, fall so for, far short of where Trump did?
0: Well, I think as late as uh, November, DeSantis himself was saying he was going to win Iowa. Right. Um, so he was personally predicting a victory there. Now, I mean, candidates will always try to be aspirational in their rhetoric in terms of how well they can perform in elections, but. Man, to make that definitive of a pronouncement, and then to lose by thirty points—that's a—that's a a pretty severe blow. Yeah, I think there's a number of reasons. One of them is that DeSantis was clearly trying to make a play for this organized evangelical Christian vote um, that propelled Ted Cruz to victory in the Iowa caucus in 2016. Before that, Rick Santorum in 2012, and Mike Huckabee in 2008. Now, none of those three winners of the Iowa caucus. In past cycles, that went on to win the Republican nomination, but they did get a boost out of winning the Iowa caucus because they were most in uh, you know, synchronicity with that uh, hi- hyper-engaged conservative Christian evangelical vote. And it was a bit more of an incongruous fit for DeSantis because he's not somebody who is ostentatiously religious, right? He's not. He doesn't have like a pastor type vibe like a Huckabee or. It's not somebody who is just going around invoking uh, biblical authority like a, like a cruise, even if it can be maybe cynical at times. Uh, DeSantis, you know, even if he is a you know professing a Catholic, he seems to be less uh, explicitly oriented toward uh, you know emphasizing his religiosity. Right, he doesn't come
1: Catholic. across as a holy roller like some of the previous exactly. Iowa caucus exactly. winners. And
0: yeah. actually, um, I, I had a I I spoke briefly with. This guy, Bob Vander Plaats, who who um, DeSantis uh, sought and received the endorsement of, who's seen as, like, you know, the uh, head honcho for uh, conservative evangelicals in Iowa. I don't even know, frankly, what Bob Vander Plaats even does, other than he gets anointed every cycle as the leader of the conservative evangelicals in Iowa. And everybody's trying to go, you know, kiss his rear end to get his endorsement. So DeSantis gets his endorsement. And I asked Bob Bob Vanderplas, you know, it's this, it, uh, this, the Santos doesn't seem quite as aligned with conservative evangelicals as these other past candidates that you have endorsed, because he, he Vanderplas endorsed in the past Cruz, Santorum, Huckabee, and that was his calling card, because he was seen as the kingmaker for the Iowa caucus. Now I, I guess he doesn't have that same title <laughs> anymore. Um, and and, and Vanderplatz said, uh, well. It's true. DeSantis doesn't really wear it on his sleeve. Everybody just kind of intuitively knows where he's coming from or something to that effect. Just basically deflecting my question, because I just don't think it was ever able to be reconciled, that DeSantis is not, does not have the same kind of natural connection to that demographic as the past, past winners did. And also, even more complicating things for DeSantis is that Trump, between 2016 and 2024, became a standard bearer. As bizarre as it is for these conservative evangelicals in Iowa, because right. not only did he you know appoint the, the three Supreme Court justices that were integral in overturning Roe versus Wade, Trump also became a something of an avatar for Christian America. and I'm generalizing here, but you know Trump himself and Trump's supporters will say this kind of thing very freely, where they they, they they feel like he really in a way is a sort of prophetic figure. Um, who is a vehicle, even if he's not a, a naturally endowed, you know, fervid Christian believer himself necessarily, he's still their chosen vehicle for mm-hmm. an act for preserving what they see as their. You know, their right. Uh,
1: Nobody's confusing yeah. him for living the lifestyle of Billy Graham, but he probably appoints the same uh, judges that Billy Graham would have appointed if he ever became president. I guess is uh, how a lot of folks uh, look at him. That make uh, that makes sense. And I have uh, friends and family members that uh, that certainly view him that way. That fall into that evangelical category. Michael, one or two quick questions uh, about the presidential race, and then I want to uh, try and ask you about the Middle East. We've been talking with Michael Tracy. If you're just tuning in, I know you said you're going to new. Hampshire. Uh, give me a prediction on where New Hampshire goes. A lot of folks are saying that that's uh, Haley's last stand. Some folks are saying it's DeSantis' last stand. Give me a prediction on New Hampshire. And what about what so many in the punditocracy and so many in Trump circles are saying that this race is already over at this point?
0: Well, I, I don't want to be um, <laughs> overly uh, hubristic and declare anything over, but I mean, my my impression for months has been that the race was effectively over. I mean, Trump has had such an insurmountable lead for so long that it was almost statistically implausible that there could be any real change. I mean, I, I think the the critical points in the prime this primary process, and remember this. Primary process is historically anomalous because Trump is running as a quasi incumbent and to go into a primary with his with the political cachet that he accumulated right. from being president and from having this very robust connection with conservative uh, core republican voters put him in such an advantage that to dislodge him. Really would have required like a you know a perfect storm, or it would have required like a perfect. It would have you know DeSantis would have to done like have to do the equivalent of like pitching a perfect game or something. It wasn't impossible, but everything had to fall into place, and that just didn't happen for for DeSantis. And if you look at DeSantis's polling status relative to Trump, it's been on a dec- it was on a decline starting in uh, March or April of last year, and DeSantis wasn't able to capitalized on some of the early momentum that he had with his gubernatorial reelection in Florida. And ever since then, it, it seemed like it was a bit of a foregone conclusion. Now, you don't I, I don't like ever being overly confident in my prognostications about American politics because who the heck knows what's going right, to happen at sure. the time. But it really did seem like the historical trajectory made it such that Trump was almost too formidable for anybody to realistically um, counter. Um, now, there's also some variables in there. I mean, everybody knows about the Trump court cases, and maybe he gets convicted. Maybe there's some, some, you know, maybe somebody gets struck by lightning. Who knows? Uh, it's not. It, it ain't over till it's over. But uh, if Trump wins by a historically large margin in Iowa, which he's already done, and if unless there's a huge shakeup, which I think is probably unlikely, in, in uh, New Hampshire relative to the polls, he's probably going to win by a similar margin or with a similar share of the vote in New Hampshire. Um, and then, uh, what reason does anyone have to think it'll be any different in South Carolina? Right. I mean, I, I, at a certain point, like there's just no realistic opening for any of these like, any of these candidates to to succeed. And I think there's going to be kind of uh, the, the 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 rationale for a Nikki Haley or a Ron DeSantis to kind of Hang around is that you know there could be like some exogenous factor, such as a, uh, a court conviction or what have you, um, that maybe forces Trump to step aside. Which you know again it's hard to imagine. But they're going st- to the, the only logic for staying in is going to not be that they can best Trump electorally, but that Trump is going to be somehow thwarted from running by. Some
1: other uh, for for some Mm -hmm. other reason. Hey, uh, Matt, uh, uh, Michael, just so folks can sort of guard themselves against whatever biases they perceive in your analysis or your reporting. I know you don't generally uh, make endorsements or things like that, but you do. uh, You are pretty open about your opinions on various issues and your opinions as to various candidates. Have you said or would you like to say who you're planning to vote for for president?
0: I'm not planning to vote for anybody, probably, this time around. I've <laughs> I've gotten more uh, uh, apathetic as the years have gone by. Maybe it's to my discredit, but um, maybe apathetic is not the right word exactly, but I've been le- become less and less inclined to be overtly supportive of any particular candidate, uh, at least presidential candidates. Sometimes mm-hmm. I'll Try to see if I can exert leverage over like a local council person so they can kind of ease up on some of the parking restrictions on my street, <laughs> other than that you know i'm not i feel uh again less and less of an inclination to really get emotionally or politically ideologically invested in the presidential campaign so uh I'm not planning to vote for Trump or DeSantis or haley or biden for that matter r f k jr i think is also you know ridiculously overrated by some, although he seems to have fallen off the radar a bit. But that's another story. The point is, I don't know, I feel like I'm uh, kind of... A man without a... I I feel like I'm intrinsically neutral, which is not something that I'm just doing for the sake of some kind of uh, performative impartiality. It's just... Kind of where I've landed.
1: Duly noted. Just so folks know where you're coming from. Hey, uh, lastly, Michael, I've really enjoyed your commentary on the Middle East. Give me your take on where we are with respect to this United States attack on the Houthis in Yemen. Uh, There seems to be a great likelihood and some concern about escalation. Where are we and where do you see this going?
0: Well, it's interesting. On the night that the first round of airstrikes was ordered by Biden uh, on the Houthi targets in Yemen, I was covering a Ron DeSantis event in uh, Ames, Iowa. And because, to to his credit, uh, DeSantis is actually much more open than Haley or even, frankly, Trump in taking kind of unscripted questions from um, uh, journalists and also just members of the public who show up to his events. So I was able to ask DeSantis, about the uh, airstrikes that had just been launched within, you know, a matter of uh, about an hour of his event getting underway. And uh, DeSantis said that he does not believe that it would have been necessary for Biden to seek congressional authorization before launching that attack on the Houthis in Yemen. And remember, um, DeSantis himself had served in the House of Representatives. Or becoming governor of florida mm-hmm. so um <laughs> DeSantis is saying that you know his his uh, perspective on the powers of the presidency is such that the president can unilaterally take military action of this kind without receiving authorization from congress um and i think that's a pretty you know, widely shared belief among both republicans and democrats in washington dc that biden apparently can just launch what appears to now be another protracted Middle Eastern war, because just tonight we've apparently uh, started the fourth round of these airstrike attacks. And there's no evidence that I can see that they're producing the so-called deterrent effect on the Houthis that was the stated rationale for the strikes uh, when the Biden administration first initiated them last week. Uh, had, their ha- had the Houthi capacity to... Uh, Strike uh, commercial ships in the Red Sea been degraded. Not that anybody could really say with any confidence, I don't think. Um, so, this is basically a new front in the Israel Gaza war that's been opened without any congressional authorization, without any real debate, uh, even though uh, Biden's administration issued this ultimatum type message along with the UK about a week or so before the strikes were launched, indicating. Now, there wasn't some like uh, you know acute emergency situation where like within you know, a half hour, the U.S. just had to strike these Houthi targets or else there was going to be some kind of catastrophe, right? This was clearly premeditated and there was a big build-up to it over the course of months. I mean, the first the first uh, exchange of uh, missiles uh, was uh, from the Houthis to these uh, ships that are transiting the Red Sea was in October, if I'm not mistaken, and so. Once again, because the, the, the behemoth of the American national security apparatus, which nobody has any, uh, sufficient, anywhere near sufficient political will to ever curtail or uh, limit the, the scope of, things have just barreled forward into yet another uh, limitless conflict, or at least a conflict that's not yet defined in terms mm-hmm. of its
1: scope mm-hmm. and
0: limitations. And to me, this was always extremely foreseeable as a result of um, the U.S. involvement in the Gaza war and it, with, with, with Israel, where there was no limitations ever articulated as to U.S. provision of, of munitions or other kinds of aid for the Israel war effort in Gaza. And it's obviously produced a huge reaction around the world, including in the Middle East, where the cause of the Palestinians is very emotionally resonant. And the Houthis say very clearly clearly that their motive as least as they pro- uh, profess it is to uh, basically take vengeance on countries that they see as aiding and abetting the Israel um, subjugation of the Palestinians in Gaza. and so you know when you, when, a, when the ball gets rolling on a protracted military conflict and you even see this to a large degree in Ukraine. The, the, the second and third order consequences are almost invariably escalatory. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the U.S. never seems to learn that lesson, whatever theater it's uh, directing, it's foreign policy, and it's just, you know, the song remains sure. the same.
1: Yeah, it, it does indeed. Michael Tracy will have to uh, end it there. I hope New Hampshire is a bit warmer for you. Hopefully we'll chat with you uh, along the campaign trail. Thanks very much.
0: All right, happy to do it. Thank you.
1: If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can give me a call, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight. 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 Night at midnight with Frank Murano. Busted flat
1: in Baton Rouge, waiting for a train, on I was feeling near as faded as my jeans. Bobby thumbed a diesel down just so far it rained.
0: And rode us all the way to New Orleans I pulled my harpoon and of my dirty red bandana
1: I was playing soft while Bobby sang the blues <laughs> When she'll wipe her slap in time I was holding Bobby's hand in mine. We sang every song that driving knew. Freedom another word for nothing left to lose. The great Janice Joplin. Uh, today's not her birthday, but tomorrow is. And uh, this is uh, obviously just a great song from uh, someone whose life was cut far too short. Primarily because of drugs and uh, someone else, another great entertainer who thankfully is still with us today is going to join us next hour. Tony Orlando. He's been very open about his drug use, wrote about it extensively in his book. And uh, now he's on he's going to join us from Las Vegas. He's on something of a a farewell tour. So we're going to get into why he's choosing to hang him up now and what he's going to do with all his free time. So that's coming up uh, next hour. I'm uh, going to get to your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. I had uh, a really interesting day in that uh, m- my son stayed home from school. He was sick, you know, if you listen to yesterday's program, he called in at the last hour. And my wife is still a bit sick. So my wife took my son to the doctor. They were at the doctor when I came home. I had to stay late uh, for uh, some meetings here. And turns out my son has pink eye, so they they gave him some drops for that, and they said it's very likely they don't have the definitive results yet back back yet. but um, they said it's very likely that he also has strep throat. So my wife figured, all right, well, if it's likely that Carmine has strep throat, maybe she has it also because she has a sore throat that has not you know that has not gone away. So she went to an urgent care facility yesterday, and it turns out the the rapid test showed her negative for strep, but it takes, I guess, a couple of days for the regular test to come back, and the uh, the physician's assistant that saw her said just by looking her at her throat, she thought it was very likely that she had uh, strep throat. So I went to the drugstore twice today, once for medication for my son, both for his eyes and for his throat, and once for medication for my wife. I'll tell you, you think you've experienced some challenging things in life? Try, just try, to hold down a two-year-old as you're putting drops into his eyes while he's insistent on keeping his eyelids shut and flailing about. I'll tell you, you know, I'm a relatively strong person, and my wife is relatively quick when it comes to eye-dropping. It took us a while to get those eye drops into his eyes. But I'm hoping, I think we got two doses in. They say it kind of goes away after three doses. I'm hoping after, we're not going to be able to send him to school today. But hopefully after today, he'll be able to go back to school. Which is where, of course, you get all these ailments anyway. Meanwhile, I still feel great. I'm trying to be as preventative as possible. I am kicking into my winter wear which is typified by wearing a scarf around my neck in anticipation that I will get sick. Hopefully, I don't. Knock on wood. But if I do, hopefully I just get sick on the weekend. I still feel great, though. Feeling great. All right. um, We're going to take your calls after the top of the hour, 800-848-9222. Tony Orlando will be here. Keep asking questions.